Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Uber social media manager Cassie Petrie. First of all, did you know that the United States is one of only four countries that doesn't pay royalties to artists that have their songs played on the radio? Yes, it's the United States, China, Iran, and North Korea. None of these pay royalties to artists. So in other words, you can have your song play a million times and you won't make a dime off of it. If you're a songwriter, you will, but not if you're the artist. And it's been like that forever. Now, record labels and artists have been trying to get this change for years and years, but the lobby for the broadcasters, the NAB, has been really strong with a lot of money and there's been a lot of pushback. They've never been able to get too far. It might be different now because there's a brand new act called the American Music Fairness Act that was brought up first in the House and now in the Senate. The AMFA would establish fair market value for radio performance royalties pretty much in the same way that it's been for online platforms. It's been endorsed by all the major creative unions as well as the Recording Academy, the RIAA, and even Sound Exchange. Now, what's interesting here is the AMFA was partially a response to the Local Radio Freedom Act, which is a non-binding resolution introduced in May in 2021. Now, what this resolution says is it opposes performance royalties for radio, arguing that it would be financially devastating for broadcasters. This very well may be true. This is not the golden age for broadcasting at all. Matter of fact, they're not making as much money. Used to be windfall profits they would make and not so much anymore. So even if this bill passes, it's probably too little too late. Radio and especially music radio peaked a long time ago. So artists might not really see too much even if this bill is passed. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember... You can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but if you have a receiver, television, or headphones sometimes, what you're going to see is a little Dolby logo on there because... There's some sort of Dolby processing going on within the device. Thing about it is, manufacturers have to pay for that, and they pay on a per-device basis. It's pretty expensive, and of course, they don't like it because it's reducing their profits. So Google has seen this, and they've come up with something called Project Caviar. This is a royalty-free alternative to Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision. And they're trying to get hardware manufacturers on board. Again, remember, it's royalty free. Project Caviar is different in that it's not another codec. Instead, the project focuses on 3D audio and HDR video formats that make use of existing codecs, 
but allow for a richer and immersive audio playback experience, much like Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision do now. Dolby charges TV manufacturers between 2 and $3 per device to license Dolby Vision. It charges consumers who want to add immersive audio to their Xbox consoles about $15 per license, but there's also a fee that the hardware manufacturers have to pay. A manufacturer of streaming boxes that wholesale for $50, for instance, they have to pay about $2 per unit for Dolby Vision and Dolby Digital. So obviously, manufacturers would love to get out from under Dolby. Samsung actually tried something similar, basically royalty-free, and failed. And there are some companies trying to establish an alternative under the umbrella of the Alliance for Open Media. The members include Amazon, Google, Netflix, Meta, and Samsung, among others. This group is currently developing a new audio format called the Immersive Audio Container that's meant to deliver 3D experiences using a variety of open codecs. So the upside is if more manufacturers actually get into this, get into having 3D audio codecs, well, that's good because it'll be everywhere. The downside is yet we have another standard and Already there's three, there's DTS, there's Sony, and there's Dolby Atmos. Dolby Atmos is basically leading the pack at this point. But Google is trying hard with this. Now, Google has tried a lot of other projects in the past and has largely failed. It still makes most of its money via ads. But manufacturers hate paying Dolby, and that's why Project Caviar actually might have a chance. My guest this week is Cassie Petri, who's been behind the social media marketing for some of music's most iconic artists, including Backstreet Boys, Camila Cabello, and Britney Spears. Cassie is the co-founder of CrowdSurf, a leading marketing and music management firm. She started at age 12 creating a newsletter for the Backstreet Boys that reached fans worldwide. Then, years later, she helped reintroduce the band to a new generation of fans. At age 17, as a college rep for Warner Music Group, Cassie was among the first in the music industry to recognize the vast marketing potential of mid-2000s platforms like MySpace and Facebook. Today, her company CrowdSurf has worked with tech giants like Apple and Google and labels such as Universal, Disney, Sony, Warner, and more. Cassie is a Forbes 30 Under 30 and Billboard 30 Under 30 recipient, and she's a leading social media and artist management Hollywood powerhouse. During the interview, we spoke about convincing a major label about the value of social media, motivating artists to post, getting artists to establish their brand, how artists may compromise their brand on TikTok, and much more. I spoke with Cassie via Zoom from her office in Los Angeles. Let's talk about you getting into the business that you're in, because the journey is always interesting, and that's what I want to hear. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it depends on, you know, in terms of the best way to talk about, you know, where I ended up, where I'm at now is it's almost kind of hard to pinpoint where it started. I always credit it to what my first sort of experience is like an intense fan of an artist, which was the Backstreet Boys when I was, it started when I was 11 years old and I really enjoyed the experience of being a fan. I went to my first concert with, uh, I was on a softball team and we won the championship in our league and our, our, um, our reward was getting to go 
to the concert and we had like a box as a team and I'd never really been to a concert, at least not like that before. And I remember that show very well and that, you know, that show very much changed my life and I probably wouldn't be here today if I didn't attend that concert because it really impacted, you know, how I experienced music. Because, you know, I, you know, experienced music in the sense of like, from a, you know, recorded standpoint, you know, as an average, you know, preteen kid, but seeing it live and watching a bunch of people in person enjoy something like that at the same time, really, you know, it was another level for me. I really fell in love with that experience and thought it was very special. So once I had that experience, I became obsessed with the Backstreet Boys. And that sort of led me to my interest in the computer and um, technology, the internet, AOL at the time, because I wanted to know how I could you know, experience being a fan more and connect with other fans. And that led me to connecting with other fans and, you know, old school chat rooms at the time. I created my own online zine that I would send out a couple times a week and actually ended up collecting over 10,000 subscribers for that, which is a really high number at that time in the internet game. And I built a fan site and I learned HTML in order to build a fan site. So that you know, sort of love for that experience with a lot of people who like the same thing I did led me to want to seek, you know, more experiences and relationships with other people who had similar feelings to, to me. So I would really say everything started from that. And then from there, I enjoyed the experience of being a fan so much and connecting with fans online that I started to become a fan of other artists because I liked the experience of meeting other people who liked the same music I did. I liked going to concerts with my friends who liked the same artists that I did. And I liked traveling to other cities and going to other concerts. And I would say it actually concert going, you know, sort of led me to another passion of mine, which is traveling and getting to do like both of those things at the same time was really, really cool. And I still do that to this day and try to find concerts to go to and in places that I want to visit and sort of make those two things coincide with each other. I think it's really special. So, you know, I, I sort of got into that circle. And then one day my uncle, he flagged me. He's like, you know, that there's schools that have programs that teach you how to be in the music business. And up until that moment, I never even like, I never, that never even crossed my mind. You know, I was only familiar with the person that I was seeing on stage. And when he told me about these programs, I became obsessed with the programs. And then I became obsessed with learning about the people who were behind the scenes from the artists. You know, I was familiar with a few because, you, you know, you would come across like some different managers and magazines and on MTV and that sort of thing. But for the most part, those people, especially at that time without social media, the way it is now, they're pretty you know, behind the scenes. So I, I really became obsessed with how do I like learn more about these different jobs and what people do behind the scenes. So I did what all, you know, people who are interested in the music business do and uh, read Donald Passman's All You Need to Know About the Music Business. I still have my first copy from when I was 15 and all the things I highlighted and the things I found important. And it's interesting because I go back and look at it and I actually... I, I, I agree with the things I highlighted that were important. And it's, it's, it's kind of cool to like go back and look and see like, I thought this was important or something I needed to like learn more about. And it's interesting to see how that sort of lined up, um, you know, 
you know, 20 years later, which is pretty cool. So I, I did that. And then I think one thing I sort of read in the book and read in a lot of other places as I went on this, like learning about the music business journey, especially because I had no connections or didn't have anybody in my family who knew anything about music or the music business. I, I learned how competitive it is and how hard it is to get a job in the music business. So I really wanted to stack the deck in my favor. So I started collecting experiences that would lend to me meeting people, lend to me building my resume so that I could, you know, continue to get bigger jobs and, you know, find a place for me in this field. At, at that point, when I was, you know, in high school, I didn't have a vision of exactly what I wanted to do yet. I just knew I wanted to be in it. Where was this? Where did you grow up? Um, Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, geez. Okay. So yeah, far from the music business. Yeah. So there's not a lot of opportunities, but I found the opportunities that I could within, you know, the city that I lived in. So there, you know, every city has local bands. So I found some local bands that I could help street team for that I could, um, I actually remember helping one band with like their reverb nation page. Um, but you know, every local band is trying to become bigger than a local band and needs help. So I found some people in that space to help. And then local bands have local managers. So I found a local manager that I could work with. Local bands have local record labels. So I found local record labels I could work with. And then there was a local record store. So I, I got, you know, I started, you know, small and in my city, but there, you know, it, it can be hard if you don't live in a major music city, but there are like stepping stones that you can build your resume with no matter where you live. There's always somebody, there's always a musician that lives close to you. So I started there and I had a really, you know, by the time I um, was done with high school, I had a pretty awesome resume for somebody my age. I don't think I, I don't think I thought of myself that way at the time, but looking back on it now and as somebody who looks at resumes, I, for a 17 year old, I had done a lot and I was able to score a Warner Music Group college rep job um, earlier than most people would have because I had built stacked my resume. They normally don't take people until they're a junior or senior, but they took me right in first year as an incoming freshman because I had put in the work. And it's, you know, I think the most important thing that they look at is, are you interested in this? And it was clear that I really cared about the music business from looking at the things that I had done to build experience, you know, especially within a, you know, a limited, you know, opportunity city like Louisville, Kentucky. So I did that. And um, that led me to Nashville, where I got to go to one of the music business schools that I had researched and learned about. So very grateful to my uncle for telling me about that, because I don't know if I would have been on the same path now. Which one was if, that that you went to? I went to a Middle Tennessee State University. I originally wanted to go to Belmont, but it just was not financially in the cards for me. It's, you know, it's in Nashville. It's a private school. It's more expensive. And I actually applied there and I was hoping I would get enough financial aid to go there. And I did not. And I was devastated. So I was going to go to University of Louisville. And then one day, um, like I, I think two months before I was supposed to start school, I got a letter in the mail from Middle Tennessee State University, which I never considered because the internet didn't exist the same way it did now. Like I couldn't research all these different programs. I just kind of knew about Belmont because my uncle told me about it and it was hard to like learn about other programs. So I hadn't really heard about theirs. And I got an email or I got some, a piece of mail. I'll never forget it. And it said, you can, you can go to our school um, for in-state tuition to study the field that you want to, because we have a program called the Academic Common Market, 
And since there isn't a music business program in Kentucky, you can get in-state tuition to study this at our school. Oh. And so that made it, you know, because it really came down to finances and to be able to pay what I was going to pay in Kentucky to go to Tennessee and be able to pay the same thing and study something I want to was life-changing. So, you know, this is probably like in July and I, you know, change all my enrollment plans. I decided to go there. I, I decided to go to that school sight unseen and I'm really glad I made that decision, but I was, I, it, I was really sad to not be going into a school and studying what I want to because of, you know, financial limitations. So to be able to, you know, make that change and be able to make it financially work was really, I'm very grateful for that experience. And so that, you know, got me to Nashville and I was able to meet some people in, you know, the college art program and the Warner music group program in Nashville, which was great. And I remember a couple months into college, this was sort of another game changing moment for me. I remember um, seeing flyers all around campus for a local band and they always advertised their MySpace page. And, you know, MySpace was new. It had just come out. I hadn't really, you know, seen, I hadn't seen any big artists use it yet, but I was like, it's really interesting that this local band is using this website to market themselves and post their shows and post their music. And I went to my boss and I was like, why don't like our Warner artists use MySpace? Why, why are, why are only baby bands using this? And she's like, I don't really know MySpace or understand what you're talking about, but if you want to do this, you're welcome to pick one of our artists and run their MySpace page. And so I, I was like, great, I want to do that. So I got to, um, I picked a group called the Click Five, who was an artist that I, they were a pop group that I really, really liked. And I wanted to spend more time working on that project anyway. So it ended up working out well. And I did really good at that job. I made them number one on MySpace. Other people within the Warner Music Group heard about what I was doing for this group because it was, it was actually like, it was, it was moving the dial. Like it was getting people, they were opening up for Ashley Simpson at the time. And it was getting people to the show to see them or getting people to connect with them after they had seen um, them open for Ashley Simpson. Like what I was doing was working and people within the company were hearing about it. So they connected me with the digital marketing vice president in Nashville. And she was like, can you come run all of our country music, MySpace pages? And I knew nothing about country music at the time, but I said yes, and I learned a lot about it. And I eventually transitioned from being a college rep to being, you know, I was I was a new media temp was the role. And I really liked what I was doing. I, I learned so much. I loved working. I worked at the record label full time. I loved working there. I also went to school full time. I don't know how I did it now, but I loved it at the time and wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, I was tired but also like so invigorated by it that it didn't matter and I just was like I felt like I was really living my dream I was getting this study music business and then also working it at the same time and that was like to have both of those things happening was just like the best education I could have ever asked for and I did that for three years and I, I really liked what I was doing and it kind of came time to like okay you're not in college anymore like you're you can't be a new media temp you know, you've already been doing it for three years. So we talked about, you know, quote unquote, like real salary jobs at Warner. And I just, you know, social media managers didn't exist at the time. That wasn't the job. That would have been the job that I would have went to if I, 
you, if it, you know that existed but it was still such a new field and still being tested and people didn't understand it not everyone believed in it yet so I made the decision to keep doing what I'm doing and my business partner was in a similar situation and we we made the decision we like what we do we think it's going to grow but we want our careers to be able to grow so we're going to start a company that does this because the job that we want doesn't exist yet that's what got us to you know start the business and that was 15 years ago we celebrated our 15 anniversary 15 year anniversary this year and that's we've slowly progressed since then like it's never been overnight but we've you know we've eventually got our first employee we eventually got our first big pop client we eventually you know we we just grew naturally it wasn't we never went out and did like the you know seed round or raise money or had a big launch like we've always just it's always been like one step at a time and now we have a staff of 50 and we have over 100 amazing projects we have a management firm now and it's always just been it's never been like one big decisive decision to launch this big thing it's just kind of evolved and i i like that because i feel like it's different than a lot of other entrepreneurs out there i feel like a lot of you know, people, and not to say there's anything wrong with this, I just don't think it was for me, but a lot of people launch a company, they raise funding, they do things a certain way, they, um, you know, drive evaluation numbers up a certain way. And we've really always been a business of, um, you know, we we spend the money we make. Um, we're not, you know, taking a loan out or taking investment out and having to pay it back in the future. We don't have shareholders. We've always really, you know, kind of, been in control for that reason and i and i i like that and i like that we're different than a lot of other you know entities who've kind of done it a different way well very cool let's talk about what you do and how you do it then but i want to start with this artists want to be artists artists like to create they don't necessarily like to promote themselves and they're required to anymore they're required to put some effort in so how much do you do for artists and how much do you get them to do for themselves? Yeah, I would say a majority of our job is motivating them to do things themselves in terms of um, figuring out what the social media or the visual extension is of what their brand is. You know, because I, I think there was, you know, when I started social media and social media 15 years ago, there was zero artist participation and, and there wasn't an expectation to really participate. You know, you had email blasts go out that were in the third person. You wouldn't expect an artist to update their own website. It was clear that like on the Twitter account, it was their team versus themselves, but that's evolved a lot. And I think that's really good that it's become a direct line of communication between artists and fans. I think that's really cool. Um, there's also a lot of um, stressors that come along with that. And I think a lot of times our job is figuring out how to navigate the stressful points of that and making it, you know, making it easier for them and alleviating stress where, where we can, that comes in a lot of different, you know, shapes and, and sizes in terms of, you know, direct social media updates from, from the artists themselves. Um, but I would say if an artist, if we're working with an artist and like the handle is, their name on the social media account they're generally in control of that we might be creating like 
assets for them to put on story so they can promote their tour. Or we might be saying like, hey, we really need another pre-save boost. Can you think of something to do? Here are some ideas for TikTok. Like I would say we're more prompting people than like do like trying to be them, if that makes sense. Um, and then we handle a lot of the stuff that you wouldn't expect an artist to handle, like building building a website, um, looking at their analytics and analyzing them and giving feedback on their behalf, dealing with um, copyright infringement issues, you know, all that sort of stuff. There can be a glitch in a TikTok account. We'll deal with that. We deal with changing usernames if somebody, you know, wants to change their username on Instagram to a name that makes more sense. You know, we help with a lot of that little technical stuff that maybe people don't think about um, making like you know the little giphy stickers on instagram stories like we're helping make and edit those um handling digital advertising for people you know all those kind of things that you know maybe you don't think about but you if you really do think about it there's a lot you know there's a lot of touch points in terms of things that need to be populated for an artist so definitely handling like all that um behind the stuff seeing scenes you know behind the scenes stuff for them as well you just mentioned digital advertising so how much does that come into it? Because some artists are, are very against that and other artists are whatever it takes. Yeah, I mean, I think, you, you know, it depends on what it is. Like, depends on what it is. So in terms of advertising, like live shows, for example, I would say unless a show is selling out as soon as it goes on sale, and even when a show sells out as soon as it goes on sale, there's always a certain amount of a show budget that's allocated towards you know, advertising that could be like billboards in a hometown that could be, you know, ads that are targeted to people in the, this, the city that the show is in on Instagram or Facebook or that sort of thing. But those are pretty common. I think people, most people don't really generally have a problem with something like that. And then there's also ads that, you know, are like the videos that show up on YouTube before you watch a music video, you know, there's campaigns like that, that we're, that we're working on. There's, um, uh, there's campaigns where you know you see different little like banners on websites like those can be digital advertising campaigns there's all different all different types of stuff but i think those are some of the like base level ones that i would say most artists engage with to a certain extent and most major record labels are definitely you know handling and running those touch points on any record that comes out Let's talk about TikTok for a second, because depending on who you talk to and how you look at it, it's either the greatest thing that ever happened for artists or it's something that people are deathly afraid of, or they think it's over, one or the other. You know, we've passed our peak on this. Where do you come down on that? TikTok, I think in terms of, quote unquote, it passing its peak, I think we've passed the peak of like extreme growth period where everyone was signing up you know i think that happened in 2020 where you would see accounts gain like over a hundred thousand followers a week that was a really magical moment because the the most magical moment to gain followers on a social platform is when everyone is signing up for it because what happens when somebody signs up on a social platform is they don't have a feed full of things to follow yet and they're looking for things to populate their feed so if you're popular on a platform, when it's popular for a lot of people to be signing up on a platform, that can be a really magical moment in terms of gaining games. I think we've sort of hit that peak in terms of mass signups. Um, there can still be, a you know, there's still a lot of opportunity to grow on TikTok and to grow immensely, but it's not going to be at that volume because we because of 
you know, where that, where that platform is in its, is it in its cycle. But the thing that I think is really awesome about TikTok is that, is that there really is an opportunity for your content to get in front of new people, whereas it's maybe harder to do on a platform like Instagram right now, for example. And, and right now, Instagram's sort of in a phase where I think people's feeds have too many things in them and they're looking to unfollow, whereas on TikTok, some people are still looking to populate their feeds. So they're kind of in different you know, phases in terms of how people are curating the content they personally want to, to look at. Um, I think that TikTok can still be amazing, though, for growth. I think the thing that I see a lot of artists struggle with and which makes me really sad about TikTok is I see artists that I know are like compromising how they feel about their brand. And they and I feel like they're probably not proud of the content that they're posting. And I, I can tell or I, I know them or I know, you know, who I think they are. And I know they're probably not. They're probably creating certain types of content because they feel pressure to do so. And I, I don't think ever think that's in a good, you know, I don't think that's ever a good situation. Um, but I understand why people get in that situation because artists are getting a lot of pressure from whether it's record labels or other team members to do certain types of content on TikTok, And even, and they, they succumb to it because they doubt themselves and don't, know if they're in the right or not you know it's it's a struggle and i i, I really feel for artists it's tough to like capitalize on a platform like this but also figure out how to stay true to yourself in the process one of the problems for an artist is you, you can get popular on the platform but not necessarily for your music yes trying to be singular singular in your focus on okay it's my music that's coming first it's not my personality that that contributes obviously but you can't forget about the music yeah and i i think that that's um i was actually having a conversation with my staff earlier about how it's so important that when somebody looks at somebody's tiktok page or instagram page or whatever that it's very clear that that person is an artist and i think a lot of times people are chasing trends or numbers or engagement and they forget about being an artist in that and chasing the numbers. And then they may get a quick fix in terms of getting those numbers, but I think it ultimately hurts their career. And sometimes social media numbers and career success don't mean the same thing. And this is something that I, it's weird. Sometimes, I, you know, I come from a social media background, so I think people will be surprised at how often we're having conversations with artists where we're telling them, don't worry about your numbers. Your content is branding you correctly, and that's going to be more important in the long run than how many views that video gets. And I finally have been around long enough to see that storyline play out correctly to be able to like reference things that I did five years ago that ended up benefiting an artist now that a lot of these newer artists look up to, but it, you have to have a lot of patience and a lot of willpower to be like, yeah, I know I could post that. Yeah, I know it would do well, but is that going to help me sell out the ACE theater one day? Probably not. You really have to know what your priorities are. Your priorities to be an internet star to get brand deals or are your priorities to you know, play a show. And not to say that both of those things can't coexist, but I think sometimes you have to pick 
one before you can focus on the other. And I think with music artists, I feel like it's really important to focus on music and make it really clear that you are focused on music in order to be able to eventually build on, you know, brand deals one day or fashion or whatever it is. You know, you think about like Rihanna. Rihanna was a music artist first and now she can, she's doing all amazing things. She's a fashion icon. She's a business mogul and a makeup mogul, but she established herself in a particular lane first. And I think you have to do the same thing on social media in order to be successful and eventually be able to be in multiple lanes. Branding is important. It's important for an artist, but I'm sure you've run into this where you've talked about brand to an artist and their eyes glaze over. So how do you get them to establish their brand? I think a lot of an artist learning about who they are and establishing their brand comes from sort of taking other people's advice and it going wrong and they sort of become more firm in their footing over time. There's an amazing artist and human that I work with who has built a giant online platform. And when she was younger, you know, this was before I was working with her too, but when she was younger, she would, you know, take advice from people on, you know, what type of content she should post, how to be more like an artist, how to be all these things. And she, and because she was younger and sort of doubted herself a little bit, she took all this advice and the advice didn't work. And I think that sort of forced her to really like know herself and know, you know, know what to say yes and what to say no to and how to like be like, this is on brand for me, this isn't. So I think some people kind of come into knowing their brand by like they're open and they listen to people like they think they're supposed to and they realize the advice they're taking doesn't work for them. And so they become more firm in their their sort of knowing themselves and their brand uh, over time. Some people just know it from day one. And I that, that's magical. And I love that too. There's an artist that we just signed on the management front who like, she knows who she is and she's not mean about it, but if she doesn't like a mix, she's going to tell you and she knows exactly what's wrong with it. Or she's, you know, if you tell her an idea for a TikTok and it's not for her, she's going to, you know, politely decline and tell you, no, that's, that's not me. And I, you know, I understand why you suggested it, but that doesn't, make sense for me, but it would make sense for somebody else. Like she just knows who, who she is. Um, but I think that, you know, regardless of how somebody like sort of becomes familiar with who they are and who their brand is, I think that you have to know yourself and know that in order to be successful. Now, I think years ago, you could have people help sort of invent a brand for you because you didn't have to be on every day with social media and digital you have to be on brand every day you know you have to talk to people all the time you have you know people can film you you know outside of your concert signing autographs so you have to you have to really be firm in knowing your brand and, and who you are because there's so many sort of places where somebody can discover it and break it whereas years ago you could almost it could be acting almost because you didn't have to do it every day but now it, your brand really has to be you and you have to really know it because it, it you can't turn it on and off like I think people used to. So I, you have to know yourself these days and you have to, you know, know what your, what your, what your brand is. And if you don't know what, you, you know, if your eyes glaze over, um, I don't know how much success you're going to have on 
TikTok and other platforms these days, unfortunately, to get to be able to answer that question first before you can go in and really go to bat on growing numbers and growing an audience. When you design a campaign, is it primarily for one platform or is it across multiple platforms? It's usually people hire us to work across all platforms. And I would say that most people hire us specifically for longer periods of time. So it's never going to be like a short 30 day campaign. In most cases, there's a few exceptions, but in most cases we're going to work with people across all platforms for at least 90 days or longer. And we think about, you know, how those platforms, you know, work across the board with each other. We think about what platforms are best for that artist, both in terms of either the audience they have, the audience they want, or who they are as a person, and, you know, what what lends themselves to, like, that artist's natural strengths. But definitely working um, across everything and really trying to keep the artist's bigger goals in mind in terms of, like, do you want to, you know, what type of audience do you want? What type of venues do you want to be playing? How often do you want to be releasing music? How do you define success and, and all that sort of stuff? Last question, Cassie. What's the best piece of business advice that you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? So one of the best pieces of advice I got was actually in my first six months of starting my company, I was working with Matthew Knowles's record label and you know, he set up a call with me to learn more about like what I was doing and what I wanted to do. And I rattled off a list of like so many things I wanted to do and, you know, how I could see my company growing and that sort of thing. And he said, listen, I don't think you're not capable of doing all these things, but my piece of advice to you is to do one thing really, really, really well. And then you'll be able to do all these things once you do that one thing really, really well. Much easier than trying to like drown an opportunity and doing everything at once. And I thought that was great advice because I was like, you know, right at 15 years ago, I was like, I want to be a manager and I want to have a nonprofit and I want to do this and I want to do that. And it's, I'm really glad I kind of stuck with doing digital marketing really, really well. And it's given me a platform to meet a lot of people and to be able to set myself up to have um, success in different verticals. And I think that that advice can really apply to a lot of people in the TikTok space now, like do one thing really, really well, build an audience for something you're really passionate about. And then, you know, you can do whatever you want once you build success in one place, it makes it much easier to, it's much easier to transition across verticals once you've had success than having success in none of them. You can find out more about Cassie and CrowdSurf at crowdsurf.net. That's crowdsurf, C-R-O-W-D-S-U-R-F dot net. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Thank you.